Hello, and welcome to the GSV Ventures podcast, where we will be discussing the age of digital learning that has been kickstarted by the 1.6 billion learners forced online by the coronavirus pandemic. As the world transitions from BC before coronavirus to AD after disease, an enormous catalyst has accelerated the opportunity of the future to today. Join industry leaders, educators, government officials, entrepreneurs, and investors as we explore the AD world. This episode is a fireside chat between Michael Moe, founder of GSV, and Dick Kramlick, legendary venture capitalist, first venture backer of Apple, chairman emeritus and co-founder of New Enterprise Associates, and co-founder and co-managing director of Green Bay Ventures. Our featured speaker, Dick Kramlick, and Dick is on now. I think he might have been in his weekly tennis match in a tiebreaker. So uh, but we're delighted to have him on this Zoom with, with us. Dick is a legend in the venture capital business, a true pioneer, uh, was a founder of NEA, which is uh, one of the largest venture capital firms in the world and one of the most prestigious. Dick, as a venture capitalist, has invested in 10 startups that achieved billion-dollar market values. One, Apple, was a trillion-dollar market value. We felt privileged in 2015 to honor Dick in the inaugural class of the Global Silicon Valley Hall of Fame with Bill Campbell and Diane Green and Larry Sensini. And Dick truly is one of my heroes, uh, amazing person, and uh, incredible investor, incredible innovator, and uh, just really delighted to have him on our Zoom this morning. So, Dick, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. I enjoyed listening to that uh, educational forum that was just going on. It was uh, ended on the right note. It did. It was perfect. Yeah. So, I want to I back up a little bit. Yeah. So, how did you get in the venture capital business to begin with? You know, it's partially inherited. I'm a, on my father's side, a third-generation entrepreneur. And on my mother's side, uh, she was very uh, you know, educational. And uh, I would say she was an ar- uh, architect, uh, actually a, a data architect in her day. So uh, on both sides, I, uh, I inherited it. And uh, I felt privileged, Michael, in a way, because my grandfather and that side of the family they were uh, wheat farmers from uh, Germany and from Bavaria and Austria in that area. And uh, when the Great Northern Railroad was getting underway, the gentleman who started it went over and actually recruited an entire village to come over and put grain and wheat in northern North Dakota. And they, he gave everybody 640 acres. It was a great idea of way to start. Long and short of it is, is that when my after that happened, they my grandmother and father grandfather moved to Idaho, and she said to him, and I've been used to uh, strong women ever since. <laughs> she said to him, "You know, if you want to live on a farm, that's up to you, but I'm not going to." And so he uh, he looked around, didn't know what to do. Read about a fellow in in Tennessee who had just started a new form. He was an industrial engineer and decided a new form of grocery shopping would be self-service grocery called Piggly Wiggly. And he went to see him and he started the Piggly Wiggly franchise, which ultimately became Safeway. 
that was in 1910, 1920, in that range. So then my father went to the University of Virginia, long and short of it, he did the same thing all over again, the middle of, uh, in Wisconsin, the middle of the 30s. And he sold the company to Kroger. And then when I was uh, going to Harvard Business School, one day I had a, I was intercepted going across the campus by one of the deans, and he said, I'll bet there are a lot of things here that you don't care for. And I said, no, that's not really true. I really respect everything about this place. Very good education, very good intelligent people and all that. And he said, no, no, come on, tell me, really. And I said, well, I don't think you have uh, enough emphasis on entrepreneurship here. And uh, this was in 1960. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I tried to go to General Dorio's class which was called manufacturing, but it wasn't anything about manufacturing. It was all about entrepreneurship. I said I couldn't get into it because I had come from the outside and I wasn't in the Northeast. I came from the Midwest. And he said, well, what else? I said, well, I think you, may, you ought to really make life as easy as possible for the students and use, uh, you know, calculators and computers and so on. And he, we were using slide rules. So long and short of it is, uh, he said, well, if I told you that our second best graduate since World War II has just started a company in Boise, Idaho, of it, if I called him and said, you, you ought to bring you out there and all that, I'll bet you wouldn't go. And I said, no, I would go. And so I did. And I wound up going all around to, this is how I got into entrepreneurship. I went to Boise, then I went to Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, to Salt Lake City and then to Denver, where my grandparents were living, the one who started Safeway. And um, I got a call from a man named John Lockhart, who knew my parents. And he said uh, and he had been Howard Hughes' first right-hand man, was a lawyer and a CPA. He had become executive VP of Kroger and obviously knew my parents. And so he said, would you stop by in Cincinnati on your way back? And I said, yes. So I did. And he said, you know, what we're going to do here is transform this company. We're going to make, take it from a regular grocery chain into being a modern corporation. We're going to systematize it, computerize it, et cetera. And he said, I would like you to come as my right-hand man. And I looked at what was going on. I said, you know, instead of, you know, interviewing for a training position, yeah. this is a real deal. Right. I wound up being there for five years, and it was, my job was manager of financial planning for the company. At that time, they had about 200,000 employees. And uh, I said, you know, this is an amazing situation. I oversaw four pools of capital, one insurance company, one top value stamp company, and then two pools of earnings space, uh, stock rewards to the, all the employees. So I was able to see how you manage portfolios and all that. And that was really when, in Boston, the first real traces of venture capital were starting. And so I went there, and I was with this. I left Kroger and went to this place as a partner. And they were all O-line Bostonians, except for yours truly. And they were great people. I learned a great deal. I was the youngest partner, so therefore I did all the legwork out in the suburbs of Boston, and learned all about new technology, and that really is what got me into venture business. I felt privileged to learn what I'd learned because I felt I could actually use all that to help employ people rather than start my own firm in something that would be really good, but I felt I was in a better spot to do that.
I was lucky there, and consequently, uh, when uh, Arthur Rock wanted to have a bring in a younger partner to replace Tommy Davis and himself, and and uh, he was going to be full time at this. He there was an article in Forbes, and it was about the money man. He was the first one in that article. Okay. So that's really uh, I responded. My wife went down to Texas to visit her mother, and I spent the weekend reading. And uh, I wrote this letter to him in longhand, and I found out later from our secretary that over a thousand people had responded, all with program resumes and blah blah. Mine was handwritten, and what I didn't know was that Arthur sent such things over to have a handwriting expert. <laughs> it was up and to the right. <laughs> I didn't know that, and so I wound up uh, coming in as a one-third partner, and he's a two-thirds partner. And I learned a great deal working with Arthur. Well, it's good you have good handwriting. Um, but no, what, it's uh, handwriting. <laughs> if you said one thing that you learned from Arthur Rock, what would that kind of nugget be? Invest in the uh, in the people who run the place. Yeah. And so then you got NEA started. What, how, how did that happen? I mean, what was sort of the idea with that? Arthur and I were talking uh, about starting a new partnership. And, and I said, uh, you know, it just really one partnership was great. And two was one too many. And so he and I uh, office together for a year, 1977. And that's actually when we financed uh, the startup financing for Apple. How that uh, evolved is I, uh, I was talking with him. Tom Perkins was a good friend of mine. And I thought the world of Tom, he had asked me, I helped him raise his first fund with uh, many of our limited partners. And um, he asked me to be a partner of his. And I was thinking about it. I, I really wanted to do something that hadn't been done in the venture business before. And through uh, my time in Boston, I got to know T. Rowe Price pretty well. And one fellow who was, I got, the fellow I worked with wound up being the president of T. Rowe. And so I stayed in touch with him. And then Chuck Newhall, who's one of my co-founders, had been at T. Rowe. He was in charge of all companies over $50 million and under. And then I met Frank Mossel through his uh, pioneering work in underwriting new technology companies at Alex Brown. And I said to Tom, look, I respect what you're doing. I think uh, I'm pretty far along on this relationship. We're going to start the first venture fund that's going to be uh, offices on both coasts and, uh, and actually make it into a national activity to begin with. And so... That's how NEA got started. We started in something that I think relates to today, and that is a very bad time. So we started and uh, we tried. We were trying to raise uh, uh, 15 million, and we were, and our first limited partner was T. Rowe Price, and then a very good family in uh, in New York, part of the John Deere family, and so we started with uh, four and a half million out of the 15. And a number of the partners that I'd worked with when I was with Arthur came in. And then F Frank and Chuck also knew a number of people. And so we wound up uh, raising uh, $16.4 million. And uh, it was in June of 1978. And that's how we got it going. And I said it was a bad time. We uh, chose some very good people to partner with and starting companies, one of them being Bob Metcalf. And um, anyway, we wound up uh, building that to $65 million within three years, and it was a great experience. And that we put in 
I, I began to uh, recruit a few people out here, and uh, Chuck and Frank, uh, and Chuck all, always took care of operations, and we had a very good woman, Nancy Dorman, who uh, managed the business affairs of the, of the partnership. And so we really built in the uh, discipline and the methodology that would allow us to grow on to where they are today, really. And that's uh, about $25 billion. So yeah, twenty-five billion from sixteen million is pretty good. Sure. And, Bob, <laughs> and just for people that aren't familiar, Bob Metcalf is the kind of the godfather, the Ethernet and founder of 3Com. So what? How analogous do you think nineteen seventy-eight was? And I appreciate it's very different from the venture capital business, but from just right. the uncertainty, challenges, issues. I mean, a lot of people right now hiding under the bed. Others look and play offense. What, what what advice would you say in terms of, you know, I mean, there's obviously a tremendous amount of uncertainties, but what is your perspective on uh, how, how this compares to then and what how, how do you think about opportunities today? I think this is one of the seventh times in my career that I would say is unadulterated great time to start. I think I went back and just was reminiscing about this and, and you, as I know, Michael, you asked very good questions. And uh, so I was thinking of 74, 87, 90, 99, and 1,000, and then 07, 08, and then today. I was thinking of those are the episodes that we've gone through. And each one we had to kind of reinvent ourselves to start with. Nothing has been significant as what we're going through now. They were all because of overdoing a particular sector of the technology world and life science world. And I say what I just heard on the uh, I think people in the educational world is absolutely one of the maker, one of the ground rules for where we are going now. But I don't think that actually this is something that's going to be suitable really in a methodology for quite a while. The new normal has not been formed yet, but I think we're gonna we're in the process of forming it. And then one of the gentlemen was talking about um, affordability and sustainability. That's all, those are good words. But when you look at what's happened and how the dislodging of happening, and millions of people that have lost their jobs and the, the, the free fall of the economy, it's, and then the oil and gas business and what that's going, some fundamental business, retail business, um, education, you know, sports, all these things have been, dismembered. And so I think we're in a brand new era, and the only real winner is, is the internet. That's that's really the, all the things that are coming out of this are basically the internet with new communication forms, new value systems, new technologies. I mean, we're adopting some of these things that had come forth before we went into this. But uh, this is a brand new era, and I think this is, as I said, I've gone through these other six areas, and they're all interesting, but this one is the most uh, substantive. I think it's going to be with us for a long time, Michael. Yeah. You mentioned 2008 as being one of those periods, and you chose 2008, I believe it was the year you moved to China. <laughs> um, what was sort of the motivation then, and what did you learn? Well, I've always been an explorer and adventurer. Yeah, you know? that is for sure. Yeah, and... Uh, I'd been going to China for about uh, since the mid '80s, and um, because it was too big to be uh, not investigated. And uh, about that time, I thought that 
Deng Xiaoping was uh, his uh, modus operandi was beginning to really be important there, and it was. It had a good 20-year run in which they really uh, made something out of China. I, I question where they are today. I think they've gone back to a controlled economy. And uh, but in any event, at that time, I think I thought it was we were in a financial mess in this country at the time, and um, we had tried to blend credit by you know blending mortgage characteristics and things like that. And uh, it was it was obvious to me we were going to go in, uh, into a disaster zone. And at the same time, the Olympics were going to be going on over there in 08. So I thought, you know, people say, well, why are you here and not there? I said, would you rather be in a depression or where there are the Olympics going on? At <laughs> uh, any rate, that wasn't really why, but I did. But I did want to understand what the Chinese people are like rather than the leadership because in China, less than 6% of the people belong to the Communist Party. And yet, Deng Xiaoping was uh, a capitalist. And, and I think his, uh, his philosophy really helped to get China organized. And uh, what they'll do from here forward is another question. But I do think they ran, had a great run in which they really uh, – got themselves uh, coordinated. And I think the Chinese mercantile spirit, their entrepreneurial spirit among many of the people was able to come to the fore. And so that was why I went. And I learned a lot. And what we did was a little different than others. We decided to try to partner with Chinese uh, rather than, you know, dominate the situation. And uh, the consequence has been, has worked out very well. Because we have not generated a lot of headlines, and not a, uh, but we have had uh, ownership position, a lot of successful deals. So you mentioned Harvard Business School before, and one of your classmates there, maybe even a roommate, was uh, Deborah's dad, David Hicks. Was he laid back and passive uh, like Deborah? <laughs> That's a good question. You always ask those kind of questions. Yeah. David was probably the best tennis player at Harvard Business School. And he came from a family of great tennis players. He and I were what they call headmates in our first year. And I, I was uh, thrilled to see him when Deborah brought him out and her mother brought him out before he passed away. He's one of the best guys around. And uh, he was an entrepreneur and a banker and uh, came from that side of it. And his career was storied in Jacksonville. Florida. And uh, I have the enormous respect for him. Very kind. Yeah. Um, it's happened to be true. Well, the only, the only, my only issue here is we were running out of time fast, and I, I just hope I can get you to do this again. But before we go, um, I'd love just to get your current thoughts about what are you looking to do in terms of investing. You talked about, you know, this is time of unprecedented on, you know, opportunities and to get going and so forth with all the challenges. Yeah. What, you know, what, what, what areas are you most excited about investing in right now? And you got Green Bay Ventures um, that right. is, is running and gunning. What, what, what are you excited about? Well, I think, as I mentioned, artificial intelligence applied to analytics. Um, and I think we have a, fortunately have a company we're really very proud of called Databricks. Yeah, we've put in, over $70 million into that. And uh, that is uh, clearly has a shot at being a great company. 
they're already very important. I do think that this is a good time for people who have experience in the life science area. I think it's a great time for that. I think we're waking up to this disaster that we're going through right now. It opens up a lot of opportunities in that area. I would say that uh, the uh, personally what I'm doing is I'm still a, uh, the chairman emeritus at NEA. I have a couple companies that I'm bringing along for their benefit, and they are looking very good, by the way. They're all, one's in the energy area and the fusion area, another one's in and the analytics and super software and uh, privacy, um, cryptology. And I think those are, we have around 20 companies that, that are in Green Bay that are important. They're going from small to growth to uh, you know, dual investing capability with our LPs. And uh, we have family LPs, not uh, institutional. NEA is our only institutional LP. And I have all younger partners, so I'm, but I'm really, uh, I think that uh, just in looking at the wolf and the waves uh, of what I've mentioned in the last, really uh, since the 1960s, so that's uh, 50, 60 years of technology development, I think we're in a great uh, time for essentially establishing new norms. And I think that's, that's where we are, Michael. Listen, you are very special, a real pleasure to... Uh, to the investment world and to all the different interests that, that, that you have. And I wish we had more time to, to, to spend on this call, but we can't tell you how much appreciate it. Thank you, you're one of my heroes. And uh, it's, it's always great to see you and it's always great to get your, get your wisdom. So thank you. Plus, I let me just end on this note, Michael, because I think what you've done is beneficial to the entrepreneurial spirit. You know, uh, by GSV that you have all behind you over here. What you've done is honored people and called attention to people who are making a difference in the world. And that's the benefit. You know, you know the word entrepreneur, you know where it comes from? It's called workmaker. Yeah. It comes from, from the central part of Europe that is either in France or Germany, depending upon the era. So that's where that word comes from. And it's a... Uh, to me, that's what you're doing is you're enhancing, you're enhancing the you know, abilities of people to build something that makes a difference. Well, from your lips to God's ears, thank you so much. Uh, thank again. you. You're All right. Amazing. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Yeah. Um, very much appreciate it. We'll let you know. I think we're, next week we're going to have another session, so please uh, zoom in and um, you know, stay safe and, and uh, stay optimistic. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Michael. This fireside chat is brought to you by the 2020 ASU GSV Summit, September 29th through October 1st at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego, California. The ASU GSV Summit wishes to thank our sponsor partners, including New Oriental Education and Technology Group, CHEG, and ECMC. Please visit ASUGSVSummit.com for more information.